Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Oh wait, we don't need to do any shooting today. We still have last week's episode to finish. So let's head back to the mutiny on the bounty and see how things end up. When we last left our story, it was April 28, 1789, and Captain Bly, with 18 loyal men, had just been cut adrift in an open launch. As they floated a little distance from the ship, Bly ordered the small sail to be raised. So before we go back to talking about Fletcher Christian and the other mutineers on the bounty, Let's see what happened to Bly, because I'm going to tell you, he was about to pull off an extraordinary feat of navigation in this little boat of his. Bly first decided to make for the small island of Tafua, which was close enough for the smoke from its active volcano to be seen on the horizon. He hoped to be able to stock up on food and water there, because at present the launch only had enough for about five days. From there, his plan was to make for the island of Tagantapu. Bly had visited there on his voyage with Cook and hoped its king would remember him and help provision their boat for a much longer voyage. Namely, he was hoping to set out for the Dutch East Indies, which was the nearest European settlement. Bly and his band landed at Tafua late in the day on August 28th. The natives living there seemed friendly at first, but as their stay grew into a second day, then a third day, the natives seemed to become more and more menacing. On May 2nd, the fourth day ashore, Bly could sense that an attack by the Tufuans was imminent. He guided his men and the supplies they'd gathered back into the boat and made ready to shove off. The Tufuans came to the shore, and a number of them managed to grab the boat's stern rope. They attempted to drag the boat back to the shore, but quartermaster John Norton leapt into the shallow water to free the rope. Free the rope he did, but he paid for it with his life, as the Tafuans beat him to death with stones. Now a man down, the rest of the men were pretty shaken up. Bly began to worry that trying to visit any other island might lead to more violent encounters, and they certainly didn't need that. He believed the best course of action was to make directly for the Dutch East Indies, specifically the Dutch settlement of Kupang in Timor. This was an audacious plan as it would entail a voyage of over 3,500 nautical miles in their little open launch. By the way, a nautical mile is equal to about 1.15 statute miles. Bly explained his plan to the men and told them that with the provisions they had, they would have to get by on about an ounce of bread and a quarter pint of water per man each day. The men unanimously agreed. The first part of their journey saw stormy weather and high seas that constantly threatened to swamp their overloaded boat. Bly kept a daily journal throughout the voyage and described these first two weeks as, quote, miserable, always wet, and suffering extreme cold without the least shelter from the weather. To try to bolster the men's spirits, he'd tell them sea stories from his career, have them sing songs, or lead them in prayers. They ended up being the first Europeans to pass through the Fiji Islands, but didn't even try to land there, 
The rumor at that time was that the inhabitants were cannibals. On May 28, 1789, one month from being set adrift, Bly and his men sighted the Great Barrier Reef. Bly found a passage through it and sailed the launch into a calm lagoon. The weather also began to clear, so things seemed to be getting better. Later that afternoon, they landed the boat on a small, uninhabited island where they found oysters, berries, and fresh water. For the next four days, they sailed northward through the lagoon, going from island to island. During this time, they could see natives on the mainland who shadowed their movements along the shore. They didn't seem to look too friendly, and their constant monitoring strained everyone's nerves. At one point, Bly got into a heated argument with William Purcell, the carpenter. If you'll recall from the previous episode, these two men had exchanged heated words at Adventure Bay way before the mutiny, and Purcell had proven himself a man who wouldn't back down. Bly actually grabbed a cutlass, there were four on board, and challenged him to a duel. Sailing Master John Fryer stepped in to try to calm the situation and told William Cole, the boatswain, to arrest Bly. Bly told them both to stay out of it or he'd kill them. And remember, this is all happening on a crowded, 23-foot open boat. That had to be a crazy scene. Fortunately, everyone calmed down. On June 2nd, they rounded Cape York, which is the northernmost point of Australia. Bly steered southwest. The original plan had been to go through the Endeavour Strait, but with their present position, they instead used a narrower passage to the south called the Prince of Wales Channel. It ran through a maze of reefs, shoals, sandbanks, and small islands, and took some pretty fancy sailing on Bly's part to navigate. But by that evening, they were through and into the Arthurus Sea. Yay, they're almost there. Oh, no, they're not. They still had over 1,100 nautical miles to go before reaching Coupang. Bly considered the next eight days to be the most difficult of the entire voyage. Provisions were low, the sailing was hard, and many of the men were nearing collapse from exhaustion. On June 12th, they sighted the coast of Timor, and two days later, on June 14th, they sailed into Capang Harbor. Now let's stop and think a moment what Bly and these men went through. They had just spent 47 days in an open boat at the mercy of the weather and the waves, most of the time on extremely short rations. Yet, Bly managed to navigate them over 3,600 nautical miles to safety, and with the exception of the unfortunate quartermaster John Norton, the other 18 men survived. That's amazing! So upon landing, Bly reported the mutiny to the Dutch authorities. He also wrote a letter home to his wife telling her what had happened. Shortly after their arrival in Coupang, one of the botanists died. The hot climate, after such a harrowing journey, just caught up with him. The remainder of the men, now down to 17, went to what is now Jakarta on August 20th, where they hoped to catch a ship bound for Europe. The cook, Thomas Hall, died there. His health had been in a steady decline for quite some time. Bly managed to get passage to England for he, his clerk, and his servant, and left Jakarta on October 16th. The other 13 men who were still left would follow suit over the next months. Of them, nine would live to see England again, with four dying either in Jakarta or on their voyages home. So now let's head back to the bounty and see how Fletcher Christian and the others were doing. 
After cutting Bly loose, Christian ordered the breadfruit plants tossed overboard. He was also aware of two things. First, there was a chance Bly would survive to report the mutiny. And second, even if Bly didn't survive, the bounty would be missed when it failed to turn up in the West Indies. He knew that in situations like that, a search party would be launched, with Tahiti as its probable starting point. His plan, then, was to make for the small island of Tabuai, which was about 450 miles south of Tahiti. This small island was only roughly charted, so it would be difficult to find. On top of this, it was also surrounded by a coral reef with only one narrow passage through it. Christian figured it would be a place easy to defend. The bounty reached Tabuai on May 28, 1789. They received less than a cordial welcome from the native inhabitants, who jumped into canoes and paddled out to attack them. Christian used one of the four-pounders to scatter them, which also caused some deaths. Even with hostile natives, Christian and his men decided this would be a good spot to settle down. But if they wanted to create an actual settlement, they'd need a larger labor force. Perhaps from some friendly natives. And, oh yeah, some women too. Christian decided to take the bounty back to Tahiti, and they arrived there on June 6th. He gave the local chieftain some BS story about coming for supplies to establish a new settlement, and dropped Bly's name along with Captain Cook's. By the way, Cook had been dead for like 10 years at this time. Anyway, the chieftains were impressed and gave him livestock, numerous provisions, and 30 Tahitian men and women to go along and help establish this new settlement. Most of these Tahitians had no clue where they were going. For the next two months, Christian and his men, and the Tahitians, tried to set up a settlement on Tabuai. They even began construction of a fortress to protect them from the natives, who were still hostile. Christian had tried diplomacy with them, but to no avail. I suppose the fact that he killed some of them when he arrived didn't help matters. There seemed to be a never-ending string of skirmishes between the two groups until an actual battle erupted. Christian and his men, being armed with muskets, easily defeated the natives, killing perhaps five dozen and wounding many more. After this, Christian could sense that maybe his authority with the men was starting to slip. So he had a meeting concerning their next steps and let the men vote on what to do. Eight of the men, the hardcore mutineers, said they'd continue to follow Christian, but the other 16 said they wanted to go back to Tahiti. They said they'd rather take their chances of arrest there than to stay on Tabuai and constantly fight with the islanders. Christian agreed to take these 16 men back to Tahiti, but knew he himself couldn't stay there. Where he would go, he didn't know yet, but he'd figure it out when the time came. The bounty returned to Tahiti on September 22, 1789, and the local chieftains were not at all happy to see them. They had found out that Christian lied to them with his silly story about founding a new settlement. He began to worry that things might turn violent, so he didn't want to stick around. The men who were staying quickly went ashore, and Christian could have left then and there, but he didn't. Instead, that evening he held a party aboard the bounty for a group of Tahitians, mainly women. Wait, what? I thought he didn't want to stick around. What's he doing throwing a party? Well, see... Christian knew that wherever they went, 
more people would be needed for any kind of permanent settlement. So this party was his way to get those people. When the partying was in full swing, he cut the anchor line and sailed away into the night. So yeah, he kidnapped these people. So at this point on the bounty, we have Christian and the other eight mutineers. Here's their names, by the way. John Williams, Isaac Martin, John Mills, William Brown, Ned Young, John Adams, William McCoy, and Matthew Quintel, along with six Tahitian men and 14 women. You know, why don't we leave them to get better acquainted, and we'll come back to them later. Now, the 16 sailors left on Tahiti began to settle in. Some kept to the ship's routine and discipline, and actually set about trying to build a small ship of their own on which to travel to the Dutch East Indies. These were mainly the guys who had been held on the bounty against their own will. Other men settled into the island life, but two of the men, Charles Churchill, hey, remember him, he was one of the guys who tried to desert on Tahiti before the mutiny, while well, he and another guy, Matthew Thompson, took to partying and chasing the local women. Guess what? Things didn't end up too well for either of them. Thompson murdered Churchill in an argument, and he in turn was murdered by some of Churchill's native friends. That leaves 14 men left on Tahiti. I wonder what will happen to them. Well, let's go back to Captain Bly. He reached England on March 14, 1790, and was hailed as a hero. That October, he had his court-martial for the loss of the bounty, but was honorably acquitted of responsibility for the loss. In November 1790, the Admiralty sent the frigate HMS Pandora, captained by Edward Edwards, on a mission to try to locate the mutineers and the bounty. He sailed for Tahiti and arrived there on March 23, 1791. Within just a few days, all 14 men from the bounty had either been captured or surrendered. Remember again, some of these guys were the ones kept on the bounty against their will because there was no room to go with Bly. Edwards couldn't tell who was who, so he locked all of them up in a special cell built on the quarter deck of the Pandora. It was about 11 feet square, a tight squeeze for 14 men, and each man was shackled down. It was fittingly nicknamed Pandora's Box. The Pandora stayed in Tahiti for five weeks as Captain Edwards tried to find out any information as to where the mutineers might have gone. Failing to get any solid leads, Edwards left Tahiti on May 8th, intent on searching the South Pacific Islands for any sign of the bounty. This search went on until August, and not finding anything, Edwards called it quits and headed west to make for the Dutch East Indies. On August 29, 1791, the Pandora ran aground on the Great Barrier Reef. The ship began to rapidly fill with water, and the crew fought frantically to try to keep it from sinking, but it was a lost cause. Captain Edwards gave the orders to abandon ship. It was only then that the ship's armorer opened the box and began to remove the prisoner's shackles. Guess what? He wasn't able to free all the men before the ship sank. Yes, the Pandora went down with four of the prisoners and 31 of her crew. The survivors, including 10 of the prisoners, set out in an open boat to try to reach safety. Had they known it, they were basically following the same course that Bly had sailed two years earlier. They reached Kapang on September 17th, having endured hardships similar to what Bly and his men went through. 
To make a long story short, the prisoners finally made it back to England on June 19, 1792. Of the ten surviving prisoners, three were those loyal to Bly held against their will. Three were guys who really didn't take a side, and four were active mutineers. Their court-martials began on September 12th. One would expect Bly to be one of the main witnesses for the prosecution, but he wasn't even in England at the time. He had left back in August of 1791, captaining the HMS Providence on a do-over of the breadfruit-gathering mission that the mutiny had disrupted. At the court-martial, four of the defendants were acquitted and released. The other six were found guilty of mutiny and sentenced to death, although the tribunal recommended mercy for two of them. These two did receive royal pardons from King George III. Another won a stay of execution that eventually led to a pardon for him as well. The other three were hanged from the yardarm of the HMS Brunswick on October 28, 1792. So yeah, only three men were ever punished for the mutiny. But what's really noteworthy of the court-martial is that much of the testimony was highly critical of Bly's conduct, to the point of almost making him look like a criminal. To make matters worse for his reputation, in late 1794, the jurist Edward Christian published his appendix to the court-martial proceedings. This made Bly's conduct look even worse, which was further exacerbated by the corroboration from one of the loyalist sailors to what the appendix said being true. While Bly's naval career did continue, it was rather mediocre at best. By the way, the jurist Edward Christian, who was so critical of Bly, oh, he just happened to be Fletcher Christian's brother. How about that? Speaking of Fletcher Christian, let's finally see what happened to him and the mutineers. After they left Tahiti on September 22, 1789, Christian decided to try to find Pitcairn Island. This small island had been reported back in 1767, but its exact location was never verified. As a matter of fact, it would take months of searching before the bounty finally landed there on January 15, 1790. It was almost 200 miles east of its vaguely recorded position so Christian felt it would be the perfect place to settle because it was so hard to find. The island was a good place to establish a little settlement. It was uninhabited and had plenty of fresh water, food, and what proved to be quite fertile soil. After unloading everything of use from the bounty, it was burned on January 23rd. There's some matter of debate as to whether the destruction of the bounty was agreed upon by all the men, or if it was just an individual mutineer, Matthew Quintel, acting alone. Regardless, with no more ship, this island was now a permanent home. For a time, the mutineers and the kidnapped Tahitians got on fairly well. Christian settled down with one of the women, whom he called Isabella, and had known since their time on Tahiti way before the mutiny. They had a son together named Thursday October Christian. Numerous other children were born as well, so it sounds like the beginnings of a happy little community. But as time went on, Christian could see that his authority was fading. On top of this, tensions began to grow between the mutineers and the Tahitians. With Christian and Isabella together, 
That left eight mutineers and six Tahitian men, along with 13 Tahitian women. Do the math. There's not enough women for all the men. To make matters worse, the mutineers treated the Tahitian men as little more than slaves, and passed the women around only among themselves. Oh, that can't be good. In September 1793, I guess you could say that things fell apart. The Tahitian men orchestrated a well-planned series of murders. Fletcher Christian was first. He was working in his fields when they shot him and then hacked his body to pieces. Then they murdered Williams, Martin, Mills, and Brown as well. Violence between the Tahitian men and the four surviving mutineers continued for the next few months. By the start of 1794, though, all six Tahitian men were dead, from fighting or being killed by the women who had been the lovers of the murdered mutineers. At this point, Young and Adams assumed control of the island, but their authority was challenged by McCoy and Quintel. To make matters worse, McCoy and Quintel turned into big-time alcoholics when they learned how to distill alcohol from a local plant. Their drunkenness often disrupted the calm lives of the others. Things continued in this uncomfortable manner until 1798 when McCoy killed himself. The following year, Quintal started to become rather violent, and seeing him as a threat, Adams and Young killed him and restored the peace. Young died of asthma in 1800, leaving Adams as the last surviving mutineer. Along with him were nine remaining Tahitian women and 19 children. What would happen to them? Well, I can tell you that nowadays, Pitcairn Island is a British overseas territory and the least populous national jurisdiction in the world. In the year 2020, it had 47 permanent residents, most of whom are descended from the mutineers and Tahitian women that we've just talked about. But you know, talking about the details of the past two centuries on the island, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends and check out some of my other episodes. I look forward to talking with you again next week.